So while China's central government is absolutely in favor of capping coal, reducing emissions, transitioning to cleaner energy, it's really difficult to implement that at the local level. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. Last week, China made headlines when President Xi pledged to stop financing new coal-fired power plants abroad and would step up its support for developing clean energy in developing countries. These announcements left the international community with a number of questions about what shape these announcements might actually take. To help us parse through these, my colleagues Nico Safos and Jane Nakano talk with Cecilia Hong Springer. Dr. Springer is a senior researcher at Boston University's Global Development Policy Center, where she heads the Energy and Climate Program at the Global China Initiative. I'll turn it over to Nikos now to get the conversation started. Thank you for joining us, Cecilia. Let me begin with the announcement that we heard from Xi Jinping this week at the United Nations. Uh, Obviously, we've seen China's level of ambition rising when it comes to climate change. And I was wondering if you could share your thoughts What is the Chinese thinking, especially at a time when the EU is leading, the United States is trying to reassert its leadership under this administration? What is China's posture in the world of climate diplomacy? And also, as part of that, maybe, was this the big thing that we were expecting from Xi Jinping before COP26? Or do you think there's another big announcement that might be coming in November? Yeah, thanks, Nikos. I think that this announcement from Xi Jinping represents a trend of increasing climate leadership from China. Last year, we saw the announcement of their 2060 carbon neutrality target, as well as some more clarity on peaking China's domestic emissions before 2030. And I think last year, a lot of the discussion was about this loophole. China is increasingly regulating domestic emissions, but what about what it's doing overseas? And so I think that this week's announcement really represents closing that loophole and doing it in a very explicit way. Um, I think the fact that it came from China's top leader is really noteworthy because China's support for overseas coal had been quietly declining, but this really brings it to the forefront. And I think it also sets the bar high for COP26. So I'm looking forward to seeing what's going to be announced there. It may not be as splashy, but I think it would be a great venue for some specificity in achieving both those domestic and international goals. Can I think maybe a follow-up on that? I just kind of would love to hear your thoughts on the drivers of that. Obviously, as you say, we've seen the ambition rising. There's a lot of uh, debate, and obviously it's a mixture of these things of how much is it pressure from overseas? How much is this sort of Chinese national interest meets Chinese business opportunity in new technologies, meets, you know, domestic public health, you know, what have you. But, you know, how are you parsing out the different drivers of this elevating ambition that we're seeing? Yeah, I think that when it comes to China's domestic targets, the 3060 goals, the 2060 carbon neutrality target and peaking emissions before 2030, I think that a lot of that motivation is coming from 
achieving related domestic goals like reducing air pollution, which has major climate co-benefits, as well as catching the wave of the clean energy transition and capitalizing on China's expertise in manufacturing and deploying renewable energy. What I might speculate about Xi's announcement this week is that it's really more oriented towards the international pressures. And that's because I think that China's overseas coal, as I mentioned, has been declining. And coal in general can be seen as a risky investment and possibly a stranded asset more recently. And so I think that making this announcement was to shore up China's climate leadership on both the domestic and the international fronts, because China was really the last major public financier of overseas coal. Japan and South Korea uh, made their announcements last year. The World Bank started this all in 2013 by saying they wouldn't support overseas coal. And so I think pressure had just been building and building on China to make a similar announcement, even if the scale wasn't that big. No, that's a great observation. And it's, I wanted to also note that uh, I agree, you know, there's all these sort of, uh, you know, pressures, other governments making announcements as well. But it was also to me quite notable that there was no sort of a clear quid pro quo that Xi Jinping's government seemed to sort of did it on its own. Like there was no do this from, you know, whether it's from Washington or from some European capitals. But yeah, no, I agree. I guess, you know, the next question is Xi Jinping's announcement, the wording, you know, so how do you parse the words? He, in Chinese says, Xinjian, which means no more coal, but Jin could mean construction, could mean, you know, a couple different things in the Chinese language. Certainly it doesn't say financing. How are we to understand what he exactly means by this statement? Yeah, I think that it is not yet clear the exact scope of this policy. Certainly, I wish I knew what was going on in Xi Jinping's head, but I don't. I think that we should expect policy documents soon from the ministries that would be in charge of implementing this. But to break it down, China is involved in overseas coal plant development through many different channels. They provide loans from their public banks as well as their commercial banks. They provide equity and foreign direct investment from Chinese companies, both state-owned companies as well as private companies. And then they, on a massive scale, are providing equipment and construction services through EPC arrangements. And which of those are going to be covered by this announcement? We really don't know yet. And those are all representing very different shares of global overseas coal development. So we could be talking about a range, you know, orders of magnitude of gigawatts of coal capacity that could be affected, depending on how the policy is implemented. So unfortunately, I really don't know, but I think we will have clarity soon. And what's been interesting is that I would have thought that the policy banks are going to be the first to fall in line Not that they've even been providing that much new coal finance in recent years, just because they work so closely with, you know, the government um, under government purview. However, I recently saw that a company, Qingshan, is already announcing that it will not 
provide overseas support for coal development. So that's a really interesting indication from a Chinese company and hopefully represents what's going to be a race to the top of Chinese companies and institutions trying to show that they are in line with with what Xi Jinping has announced. I want to come back to that question of the domestic political economy and, and, and all that, but maybe before we get to that and switch a little bit more on the domestic front in China, maybe one more question on what does this mean for the coal power plant pipeline of projects? I mean, we've seen obviously a number of projects sort of get canceled or wither away. The competitiveness of coal has changed. You talked about coal being a risky investment these days. And obviously China was sort of the last major sort of supporter across the board, as you described, of EPC construction, financing, equity, all those things. So, you know, how are we to interpret sort of the trajectory of coal, especially in sort of Southeast Asia, where the, the Chinese were very, were very active? Obviously, you know, you and your colleagues have done a, a lot of work on this. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on how we tease out the implications from a, an emissions and a coal use perspective. Yeah, I think it's really important to emphasize that China is the last major public financier of coal, representing around 50% of public finance for coal over the past few years. However, if we're looking at public and private finance, so finance coming from commercial banks, China is actually only representing 13% of recent coal capacity receiving public and private finance. So there are a lot of institutional investors and commercial banks from outside of China that have been supporting coal development overseas. And so I think that when we're thinking about the pipeline, yes, China not supporting new projects and potentially withdrawing from projects they're in a sort of murky planning stage will certainly avoid gigatons of lifetime carbon dioxide emissions, the story of coal is not over. We will have to shift attention towards the private sector. And a lot of U.S. institutions, actually, like Vanguard and BlackRock, have been supporting overseas coal development. And so this represents maybe a time to really think about China's relative stance in the whole story. If I may, I have a just quick sort of follow-up question. Yeah, and you did mention to you know, U.S. institutions, and I was just curious, when it comes to uh, public financing, as you mentioned, and I think elsewhere, you know, China, Japan, and Korea have been the leading borders. But yeah, when it comes to the private sector, I think the actually, you know, there are quite a f- I guess, few countries, from what I gather, is there some regional breakdown or what are some of, which are some of the countries that, we, you know, that we really want to see better, I mean, more effort to address this emissions challenge associated with overseas coal financing? I think that the public finance discussion was rightly centered on China, Japan, and South Korea, who had been providing major support for overseas coal plants through their state or development banks. I think that when we're looking at the private sector, Japan will continue to be a major player. But as I mentioned, some of these U.S. institutions are also involved. And so I want to raise the question from a policy perspective Is it right to focus at the country level? Because a lot of these institutional investors are not necessarily following, for example, 
U.S. or Japanese policy. They're so big that their policies need to be set at the company level. And so I think that advocacy these days that I've seen has sort of rightly been focusing at the institution level rather than the country level, which I think that we as scholars are not necessarily able to track things at the company level. It's a lot easier to gather country level data. So I think hopefully that advocacy will really focus on understanding exactly what each company is doing as well as pressuring them to do better. And I think that also underscores the importance of the parsing of the words, right? Because if you talk about financing, it's a very different thing than if you talk about building, if you're talking about equipment and EPC, because that's the, the Chinese role is actually, I would say, much more significant there if you want to really pull back on the entire value chain, which, which brings me to that question of, you know, the domestic political economy that you talked about. In an ideal world, we have sort of a race to the top. You know, the narrative has always been that China's overseas coal push has been a mix of push and pull, right? The, the countries themselves ask China for coal. We've seen a, a coal boom in a number of places, you know, far before there was a Belt and Road Initiative or far before the Chinese were involved and all that. But at the same time, uh, we also know that China had a lot of excess capacity. There was a search for uh, business opportunities overseas. So when you think about the implementation of this, I mean, obviously it comes from the top. So I wouldn't suggest any sort of outrights or questioning necessarily or undermining that target. But, you know, it does create some questions about political economy when you're sort of taking the support out of a system that has sort of flourished in recent years. You know, how, how do you read that political economy question, what it might mean? And also maybe more broadly, what it tells us about the ability to, you know, make these bold pronouncements that do alienate or undercut or undermine, you know, serious business interests in the country, right? And the ability to sort of steer the ship in a direction that maybe creates a lot of losers. Definitely. And I think that's why it's so interesting that Xi Jinping used the word build versus finance. Because like we were discussing earlier, I think that there's less of a business case for financing coal these days than there is to be providing the equipment and construction services, especially for Chinese companies that are doing so. So I think the fact that he said build, I'm hopeful, will mean that it's including all of these EPC arrangements, which, according to some of my recent research, are actually greater in terms of the amount of capacity associated with it than the capacity for finance for coal, gas, wind, and solar combined that China is doing abroad. So it's really on a very large scale that China is building, even without associated finance. And I think that reflects the business opportunities that being involved in these EPC arrangements has provided for Chinese companies. And a lot of these companies, they may not be able to continue to access domestic opportunities for those, you know, providing equipment and things like that. And you mentioned push-pull factors for what's determining China's overseas energy investments. And I think that in general, the pull side, so what's going on in host countries has been 
underappreciated. I think that the overcapacity is definitely, you know, pushing things out of China, and that may have been more of a driver a few years ago when China's overseas development finance peaked, 2016. But more recently, I think that a lot of these developing countries with rapidly growing energy demand and entrenched coal sectors are. What are determining China's continued involvement in coal specifically? Because of course, electricity can come from coal, or it could come from wind and solar energy, and it's really dynamics within these host countries that are determining that choice when they're working with Chinese partners. I guess, in a way, many of these coal-fired power plants in China seem to be underutilized, and maybe the you know figures may look little. I guess stronger in recent years, you know, for different political reasons, perhaps you know, in part as influenced by COVID-related factors, but it may also affect the actual I mean, coal demand as fuel. So it's there's the construction part, and all, you know, as you mentioned, you know, equipment manufacturers, you know, staying busy, but it, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to translate into coal demand in China's case, right? Do you expect any change to that? Scenario. Yeah, I think that there's a really big puzzle for what's going on with in China because there are so many coal-fired power plants within China that the amount of electricity they produce would never be utilized. So you run into this overcapacity and curtailment problem, and you know a lot of people have asked, well, why is China continuing to build coal-fired power plants when they already have too many? And I think that really comes down to this disconnect between the central government and the local government in terms of how the bureaucracy is set up to achieve economic indicators over, for example, environmental ones. And I think that also the approval process for new projects has been decentralized from the central to local level. So while China's central government is absolutely in favor of Capping coal, reducing emissions, transitioning to cleaner energy—it's really difficult to implement that at the local level. And I think you see that for all different kinds of environmental policies within China. And so, China also being a major coal producer, I think there are a lot of questions about you know the shifting fuel market for coal with you know China's. Tense relationship with Australia on coal imports, as well as other regional producers, it's difficult to predict what will happen. All these shifts obviously raise the the question of you know the green BRI, and it seems that you know as part of the announcement on not building new coal, there was also a sense of China sort of recommitting itself to providing support for emerging economies. In their own energy transition, you know, it's one thing to say no more coal on its own. It doesn't necessarily help、uh, countries accelerate their energy transition. It just kind of stops the the production pipeline on coal. You know, do you read those two things as being paired, less coal and more green, or is it primarily a less coal at this point? I think that a lot of the Media attention so far has focused on the no new coal aspect of the announcement. I mean, almost exclusively in some cases, but there was actually a lot of really, I would say, positive language in Xi Jinping's announcement about supporting 
low-carbon energy, as well as broader principles of people-centered development and equitable development, because we know that in some places it's going to be a really big issue to actually withdraw support for the coal industry. I don't think for coal-fired power plants it may be as big of an issue, but in general, the sunset on the coal industry means that a lot of people, a lot of workers in that industry are going to be affected. And so I think that looking at the bigger picture and the full scope of the announcement shows that China is probably also going to support renewable energy. And I think that they should. They should definitely not be abandoning developing countries that are in need of capital to develop their energy sectors. I think that China should really shift that foregone support for coal towards renewable energy. And China is certainly involved in renewable energy development overseas. You know, lots of solar projects, wind projects that are taking advantage of Chinese technical expertise and manufacturing expertise. And so I think China is very well poised to capitalize on renewable energy in the same countries where it might have done coal. Oh, and I also want to add our recent research at Boston University has identified $1 trillion of renewable energy investment opportunity based on what developing countries have agreed to in their nationally determined contributions to the Paris Agreement. So we calculated the renewable energy capacity that would take to achieve those Paris targets. And it's a lot of investment opportunity that China can meet. Maybe one more question. I wanted to come back. You talked a little bit about, you know, coal at home. Xi Jinping also talked about the peaking of emissions, which is always a very difficult to pinpoint. What exactly does this mean? It's, you know, 2030, hopefully before. We're about a year after, you know, his major announcement uh, about the 2060 target. You know, how much have things evolved and changed in terms of the next 10 years and China's thinking? And, and to what extent is, is what he said at the UN giving us more comfort that there's going to be a, a faster domestic energy transition, which because obviously, you know, overseas coal is, is an important part of the picture. But at the end of the day, how much coal China consumes at home is by far the biggest and most important driver of its contribution to greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah. Let me share some relative numbers that hopefully help put this in perspective. So according to our China's Global Power database here at Boston University, China has about 33 gigawatts of overseas coal capacity that are under construction or planned that are receiving Chinese finance and investment. And a lot of this has already been suspended, and that will be reflected in our next database update because things are changing so quickly. So that's around 33 gigawatts. And then domestically, China has a coal pipeline of anywhere from 100 to maybe 300 gigawatts of coal planned. So looking at the global climate challenge, what China does at home matters a lot too. And so I think that you know, last year when China announced its domestic climate targets, everyone was saying, well, what about overseas? And now that they've announced an overseas 
target, we're all saying, well, what about domestic? So <laughs> uh, China just can't catch a break. But I mean, it is also the world's largest CO2 emitter, the world's largest consumer of energy and so on. So this is rightfully a focus of the global policy and advocacy communities. And I think that since those announcements last year about domestic climate targets, we're starting to see more specificity about how that's going to be achieved in individual sectors or we will see more detail very soon. And like I said, I'm hoping that COP26 will be an opportunity for China to lay out a really credible pathway because a lot is going to happen before 2030 uh, in order to achieve that emissions peaking target. And it's really going to come down to China's power sector. So all of those Uh, idling coal power plants, the industry sector, where China also has a lot of covert capacity, steel, aluminum, cement, and transportation, where, you know, everyone in China, well, not everyone, but a lot of people are not able to buy and afford uh, personal cars. So we really need clear roadmaps on how this decarbonization is going to occur. Cecily, I'm glad that you mentioned the 2030 peak level question. Uh, I was really excited to here, you know, Xi Jinping make this announcement at the UN, but I was also hoping to hear the, the level of the peaking China hopes to hit by 2030. So maybe that's the piece that maybe we can expect at the COP26. What would you think? I think that China is incredibly careful in the formulation of its targets to never have absolute numbers or levels. Everything is always framed in terms of intensity or even, a, you know, a general peak, but not until recently, not exactly even knowing when that might happen. So I am not sure that they would change that strategy anytime soon. So it's a matter of the negotiators working with China and, you know, climate policy with Chinese characteristics. Gives us all something to look forward to COP26 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 30. So thank you so much for joining us, uh, Cecilia. That was a wonderful discussion. I really appreciate your insights and uh, hope to have you back when uh, China says more things that we really hope it says. Thanks to Cecilia for joining us this week. We've included resources from her and the Boston University Global Development Policy Center in the description and encourage you to check them out. And our team will to continue to track these announcements as we head into COP26 in November. We look forward, as always, to hearing your thoughts and comments on these issues. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts or at CSIS.org. As always, follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy for more updates and thanks for listening. <laughs>